0: Welcome to Banfield and congratulations on the incredible investment that you made. If you own a house, this last year has been pretty good for business. And chances are your house has never been worth more than it is right now, which begs the question, should you sell it and then pocket all that extra cash? It's a great idea, except that you still need a place to live. So what are your options? If you sell, you could find yourself a good rental, but let me tell you, it's not easy in this extremely tight rental market. If you sell and plan to buy something else, maybe something smaller, good luck. The housing market is still tighter than it's ever been. And you might pay top dollar for a home that just could go down in value. And then there's the question of financing it. Mortgage rates are going through the roof. So even if you find that perfect home, you are going to pay way more for your next mortgage than the one you're paying for right now. And that's led people to walk away from the banks in droves. The Mortgage Bankers Association says the number of people applying for a home mortgage fell 3% just this past week. And if you compare that to a year ago, they are down by nearly half. It's because of how much they cost, folks. Just look at the prices you pay for a mortgage today compared to a year ago. In April of 2021, a 30-year fixed mortgage came in at $3.20, uh, th- three, th- sorry, 3.2%. Okay, but today, one year later, that rate has jumped to 5.2%. And that is 200 basis points of a jump. Just this week alone, we hit the highest mortgage rate in over a decade. So that's likely going to mean that the buyers for your lovely, expensive home might dry up and that the value that's been growing, growing, growing might be about to fall. So what do you do about it? How can you protect your investment? And should your age dictate your next move? Here to help us break this all down is Kristen Myers. She's the editor in chief of Balance, The Balance, and uh, Kristen Jordan. So we got a Kristen and a Kirsten. I got to be very clear about that. Um, <laughs> Kristen is a is a uh, real estate expert featured on the TV show Million Dollar Listing New York. All right, ladies, thank you so much for doing this tonight. Let me start uh, with you, and I will start with Kirsten, <laughs> the Kirsten thank on you. TV. Uh, so the, the the thing that I want to know is. Um, if the, all the things that I just laid out, is this still a seller's market for the folks out there who are saying, maybe I should cash in and get all that money out of my home now?
1: Well, right now, we're still seeing a seller's market in most of the U.S. because of the lack of inventory. A lot of these numbers that are surrounding the number of, fi- you know, the number of applications for mortgages, the number of transactions also have to do with a lack of inventory. Agents are literally lamenting that they can't find listings to sell, and that's part of the problem. So yes, it, you can't deny the fact that mortgage rates have gone up. But there is truly a lack of inventory, and that is really what's causing the biggest change here for us, and we're seeing that really across the country.
0: So the inventory thing, I kind of think at some point that that might you know that might change. So Kristen, um, do we expect that inventory to shift, and maybe at some point soon the real estate prices will soften, maybe drop uh, significantly?
2: You know, that's really right now the million dollar question. But unfortunately for those that are out there, you know, hopefully hoping that, you know, those home prices are going to be dropping anytime soon. Unfortunately, it might not happen. As we just heard Kirsten saying that the inventory is incredibly low. And right now the demand is still far outpacing that supply. But we do have a few things to look forward to, at least if you're looking out for some of those home prices and you're hoping for it to come down. As you mentioned at the beginning of the program, we are seeing some of those demand for mortgages dropping. And we're also seeing home sales starting to drop. They dropped about 3% last month, according to some of the data that came out today. And we also, of course, have those recession risks, which are looming, and that will definitely take a huge swing at the housing market.
0: So you kind of echo what the CEO of Caldwell Banker had to say on CNBC. And I love this because it talks about the unicorns who live among us, people who can just hand over cash for a house and they don't need a mortgage. I hate them, but I want to let him talk about the significance of that unicorn in our market today. So have a look at this.
3: So with prices increasing on mortgage rates, for instance, relatively quickly, yes, it is a rapid increase. But we also have a rapidly moving market, a very high velocity market. I think the rate increase will tamp down demand just a little bit. However, I've got to say, if you've been in the market recently, you've seen we're looking at multi-offer situations pretty much everywhere. Yeah. We're looking at high cash down payments. In many cases, the winners in the bids are cash buyers who are not impacted by these higher interest rates. So. For those of you out there who are thinking, well, I hope this means demand will go away and I can operate as a buyer in a more normalized marketplace, I wouldn't hold your breath. I continue to see demand very strong.
0: I am holding my breath, Kirsten, because I I think that those unicorns
1: eventually are going to peter out. Am I wrong? Well, the the other part that no one's really talking about, well, they're, they're publishing some articles about it, is that there are the institutional investors that in the fourth quarter made up 18% of all home purchases in the US. So Wait, that's what? one in five. Yes. One Seriously? in five purchasers are hmm. institutional investors and their financing, by the way, is totally different. They're not affected by these rates in the same way. And they still see value in purchasing these properties, flipping them, improving them, turning them into rentals or keeping tenants in place for the homes that already have, that already have tenants in place as, you know, as, as, uh, as, you know, owner-occupied, I mean, sorry, tenant-occupied homes that are already cash flow positive. So, you know, that's something that I always reference because that is a disruptor to the marketplace. Because before it was just, here are the amount of people that are buying, here are the amount of homes we have, and here are mortgage rates and supply and demand. But really, we're also seeing the fact that there's this big disruptor that are these big institutional purchasers that are that are continuing to buy and also individual investors that are interested in those markets.
0: I don't know where I've been, but I sure didn't know that the institutional
1: investors, you say 25 percent. What was the percentage you said they no, made up of the housing market? 18 percent in the fourth quarter. 18. I mean, we've seen it yeah, across also across several boroughs of, of, of New York. We're seeing it in Brooklyn. They're they're going deeper and deeper into Brooklyn. They're buying up these already cash flow positive mom and pop and, you know properties where they're already they're already tenants in place, they just buy them, they're already cash flow positive or they buy larger ones and then they, they, they renovate them and then they put them up for rent of higher numbers than they've ever seen before.
0: By the way, as you're talking, I'm just looking to the right at these incredible real estate porn pictures. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I can't take my eyes off beautiful, you know, marketing of um, of homes because sometimes they're real stinkers that, you know, you can shine up and make look really good. And sometimes they just they just look that good. OK, so, Kristen, help me out for the audience right now. We have people, you know, of all ages. And I'm sure that the decision making when it comes to these pick your poison thing, Right. It really is a pick your poison. Do I sell this house and get my money out of it and get that bump that, you know, I realized in the last year and a half uh, and then, you know, kind of screw myself on the higher mortgage I'm going to pay <laughs> on the next place I got to buy. So if you're 30, if you're in your 40s, if you're in your 50s, 60s, 70s, how should you sort of change your thinking or, or should you? Are we all in the same boat?
2: Yeah, that's a really great question. And and it's a, a really interesting one because the situation that we're in right now is not exactly the most enviable position that you could possibly be in. You know, you could sell your home, for example, and what most people do, especially if you're younger, if you're in your 30s or 40s, for example, you're going to take that cash and you're going to what I would say is upsize, right? You Perhaps you had that starter home and now it's the time for you to upgrade to something that is a little bit larger. But the mortgage rates are getting very high and the housing prices are still incredibly high. And so some folks are unable to make that leap, even with the cash boost that they're getting from selling their home, even in this hot housing market. And then if you're older, I would say fifties and up, you're starting to think now about your retirement. And this is a time when people start considering, okay, perhaps I'm going to actually downsize. Now, if you're in that position, what you can do is take some of that cash you can buy as an you can be one of those all cash buyers that Kirsten was talking about and buy a, a much smaller house and then use that extra income to supplement or you can decide to rent and if you are particularly 70s and older you might be able to take some of that cash and be able to pay for a retirement community or another kind of community and fund that until the end of your years and then also supplement. And that will only happen, however, if you can make enough money on your house. So you really have to kind of look at your personal financial situation and see if it actually makes sense for you to sell in this moment, if it makes sense for you to buy uh, in this moment, considering how high mortgage rates are going and how high house prices are, or if it's honestly just better right now to just stay put, grit your teeth, cross your fingers, cross your toes, and hope that the situation will get a little bit better.
0: So that's kind of what I've been thinking a lot about, right? Just stay put and, you know, put my head in the sand almost. Um, but mm-hmm. I have to be honest, Kristen, like if you're a boomer right now and you're watching, the boomers really struck it lucky on this run, right? Because they were probably selling their homes in the last year and a half and thinking about downsizing, you know, and they sold at the top of the market and they bought in when the mortgage rates were, were nice and low and they're sitting real pretty right now. Anybody who did that was just like, Mwah, lucky, lucky. But is the, is the advice, if you're just not sure, and if your life is a little unstable, you're not sure about your career, you're not sure about your job, is the best advice just hang on tight? I mean,
1: if you're if you're definitely not sure of your career and you know that you have a fixed mortgage rate that's lower than, you know, by by a bunch, by a couple of points of what it would be to buy something new then you should definitely be cautious. I mean, it's it's the same as when you talk to people about their stock portfolio. They're always advised you know, to be conservative if you're if you're older and you're always advised to be maybe a little bit more bullish when you're young and you know, you know what you're that, you know, you have this future ahead of you. And I like to advise my clients the same way. Listen, if you can't thread that needle to do that sale and that buy, because it literally is threading the needle of making sure that those numbers are perfect and that neither side falls apart, then there's nothing wrong with staying put holding real estate longer has always been the way that you're supposed to handle the assets, right? You're supposed to hold on to real estate. So selling, yeah. it, it's, it's selling isn't, isn't what it's about. And yes, I, I love to have sellers and that's what we do for, you know, for a living here. But at the same time, the best thing to do is to hold. And if you can hold, hold and enjoy having a lower cost of living and then make the move when the time's right for you. Uh, Kristen Myers and Kirsten Jordan, thank you both so much. I really appreciate it. And I'm glad
0: I got through a segment with a Kristen and a Kirsten without too much uh, calamity. <laughs> Thanks, ladies. Thank okay, uh, folks, if you decide to sell your home and cash in on that soaring value, what's the next step? Or maybe the better question is where is the next step? Because it turns out there's some really affordable places where you could tuck your nest egg away and still live the lifestyle that you want to. And as always, there are places you should probably avoid. So here to talk about the best and worst places to buy a home right now is Yuri Mann. He is the executive vice president of Alantejas, and he's the president of Lagoon Development. Welcome back to the show, Yuri. Nice to see you again. Thanks for doing this. Great.
4: Great to see you too, Ashley.
0: Okay, so let's like let the cat out of the bag. Where's the most affordable place to buy right now?
4: Well, one of the best, most affordable markets in the United States is Houston. And today, people are looking for big cities in warm weather environments where they can enjoy uh, great entertainment, wonderful restaurants. Um, the people that are aging into home ownership today, Generation Z and Millennials, they want to be in places that are active. And Houston offers that. In fact, the entire Sun Belt is where people are gravitating to. And Florida and Texas are two markets that have really benefited. Uh, from the last uh, uh, tax change, the structural tax change, which makes it more beneficial to live in in those states.
0: So I heard that uh, Pittsburgh was the number one place, the cheapest place to, to buy in America.
4: Well, I, Pittsburgh is definitely, I think, I think it's ranked as the most affordable city in the United States to live in. Um, it's a great city. I've been there, but it's definitely not on anyone's list to move there. And that's one of the reasons it stayed affordable. You know, during the pandemic, we had people leaving expensive coastal cities like Los Angeles and New York and moving to places like Florida and Texas. And Pittsburgh doesn't have a huge uh, population, and it's downtown. It's mostly spread throughout the suburban area. So you didn't see a mass exodus of people living, leaving a city, going to a suburb. And certainly it's just not a city where people are looking to move today. Um, you know, one of the things that people always pay attention to is, where is the great weather? And I think... Pittsburgh is one of the top three cloudiest cities in America, unfortunately, for them. Yeah.
0: That's interesting. So one of the things I thought was interesting, I looked at this study from a place, well, an organization called Demographia International Housing. They looked at 92 different housing markets all around the world. In fact, it like they looked at Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, Singapore, the UK, Ireland, Canada, and of course the US. I love the fact that the positive note is that the United States comes in at number one for affordability, which is amazing. But rounding out from Oklahoma City, you saw that list, Rochester, New York, New York, sorry, Mm-hmm. rounding out from Pittsburgh, the next one was Oklahoma City, then Rochester, New York, then Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and then St. Louis, Missouri. And I was wondering like why you think those particular cities cuz I don't think I've seen those on an affordable, you know, list before.
4: Again, again, these are cities that really have not benefited from the COVID pandemic effect. People didn't move to these cities when uh, the pandemic hit. But I love the fact that the United States came in as one of the most competitive places, one of the most affordable places that you can buy a home. And the reason being most people forget is we have this great, amazing gift in the United States. It's the 30 year fixed rate mortgage, which makes it extremely affordable to buy a home. And when you tell people in other countries, oh yeah, we can get a 30 year fixed rate mortgage. They're, they're like, wow, that's amazing!" Because a lot of countries have almost no fixed rate mortgages. They have only floating rate mortgages, which means you have no uh, ability to plan for the future because your mortgage payment may go up. In the United States, we are affordable and especially it's very um, attractive to buy a home because, you know, cars 10 years ago cost a lot more today. Groceries 10 years ago cost a lot more today. And the same thing with rents. And if you buy a house, your mortgage payment with a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is secured for the next 30 years. That means that eventually, even if you move out, you're going to be able to charge a rent and you're going to make a profit. And so it's always a great time to buy a house. And it's one of the reasons the United States ranks very, very strongly on the Affordable Housing Index in terms of a great place to buy a home.
0: We're number one. Okay, so uh, I always love to give the bad side of the, you know, the ledger as well as the good side. And thank goodness sure. that uh, we're not on, on this one except for one city. Um, the worst, least affordable places, Hong Kong, Sydney, Australia, Vancouver, British Columbia, which, by the way, is so beautiful but so expensive, San Jose, California, and Melbourne, Australia. Um, and I, I'm trying to figure out if those cities will ever be affordable or that they just toggle for, for last place all the time.
4: I don't think they'll ever be really affordable. The plate, those places are all constrained in terms of inventory. It's very difficult to get a new building approved and built in Vancouver or San Jose. And, you know, all of the left wing, uh, tree huggers in San Jose, they don't want to see any more development and they're still upset that their housing prices are going through the roof. So, and, and there's a huge problem with that. It's a big conflict. So these cities that you just mm. mentioned, they're just not going to have enough inventory to meet demand, so you're always going to see incredible pricing power. Uh, if you want to, if you buy a house there, it's you're going to be paying a very high price per
2: square foot.
0: Okay, I want to shift a little bit because I learned something today I did not know, and that is that Portugal is like the place to retire to move to. The Wall Street Journal says that the you know retirees are moving there in droves. They've said that the numbers are crazy, like. Forty five percent up from from last year. The numbers that have left, and it's almost triple the number of Americans who've gone to Portugal in just the last decade. Why?
4: Yeah, I was just actually in Portugal right before the pandemic. Amazing country, but let's not forget that like ten years ago, if you ask Europeans if is Portugal in Europe, they would say no. They thought of it as like a third world country, and it's very affordable to go there and rent a place. But you have to remember, you know, if you buy a place in Portugal. Uh, or rent you're very far away from your family and friends you know the gas prices are extremely expensive a lot of consumer uh, goods are also very expensive you get beautiful beaches great weather you can get on a train and go to all parts of Europe it's a fantastic place uh, it's very popular because they have a program They have an incentive to come there and move there uh, but you have to really think, are you ready for that kind of change? Because it's not America, and, and you have a lot of bureaucracy. That's the number one thing that people complain about when they move to third world countries. You're not looking at the United States where we try to make everything easy, and we're pro-business.
0: Yeah, but listen to this list. Low cost of living, uh, health care, that's government, uh, of course, that beautiful weather you mentioned, tax incentives to move there, and it's easy to get, um, a resident visa. All that makes perfect sense. Um, does safety- Great come wine, too, by the way. That's some factor? of the best wine in the
4: world, too. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you got that right. I know that. Um, does sure. safety rank in there for for the cost of uh, of what it like the, how expensive it is to live in a city? Do they factor that in?
4: Sure, they do factor it in. I mean, you should always think about safety. I mean, one of the things that people complain about in uh, most European cities is how dangerous the roads are, the drivers. Uh, you know, it's it's just not organized. We don't have the big highway systems like you have in the United States. But safety definitely comes into play when you consider. Moving abroad, you want to be in a place that you feel safe. And it's tough sometimes in a foreign environment, a difficult new language. You get sick. All of a sudden, you can't talk to the doctor. And you can't explain what's going on. Uh, but, of course, with Google Translate, it's almost anything is possible today. So um, yeah, it's for certain kinds Yeah, people.
0: Yuri, man, great to see you again. Thank you. I look forward to our next Good visit. You.
4: Thanks, Ashley. All right.
0: Take care. So you pass by them on the highway at the truck stop and even on the side of the road, but have you ever stopped to think what it's like to be a truck driver? How and where do they take their breaks? How do they find the best food on the road? Where do they go when the day is done? And on those very, very long hauls, where on earth do they relieve themselves when the truck stops a little too far away? Brian enton climbing into a big rig for Truck Week, and he brings you the day in the life of an American trucker, and you do not want to miss this. It's next. When I was a kid and my family uh, went on road trips, we used to play a game in our station wagon. You had to look way down uh, the highway towards an oncoming semi. And then you had to try to guess the make and the model before you could actually see it on the grill. I always guessed Mack truck because I didn't know uh, what the other trucks were out there on the road except for Mack trucks. But my brothers, they taught me about Kenworth and Peterbilt and Volvo. And I ended up getting pretty good at this game, actually. And that might be the reason that I am so fascinated with the people behind the wheel because they went by me so fast, I never got to see them. And I sure did not get to talk to them uh, because if I could have talked to them, I'd have asked them a million questions like, what do you do when it's time to pull over? Uh, what if there isn't a rest stop nearby and you're sleepy? How do you find good food on a long haul trip? And do you love being out on the open road? Are all the questions that Brian Enton got to ask because he went out on the road with an American trucker and he lived the life for a day and he's here with me to tell us all but I'm so so jealous that you got this assignment so what was it like Brian?
3: You know, Ashley, I agree with you. It was actually really fun, especially because when I was a kid, I was sort of so intrigued by trucks and seeing them on the roadway. So I had a good time. I also saw the challenges. There were a lot of delays that I didn't expect. They wait a long time at receivers uh, and at warehouses, and that can be really, really frustrating. We're out at the truck stop tonight, uh, and I want to show you because we spent a lot of time at truck stops. Um, Basically, the truckers come in during the day and they sleep a lot during the day. If you listen, you can hear this yellow truck is on. That means there's someone in the back. They've got the AC running. They're sleeping, probably getting ready to leave soon because they like to drive overnight when it's not as busy on the highways. And there's a lot of really cool trucks around, like this one lime green. You can see it almost has like disco lights going inside. The trucker inside uh, there is actually getting ready to head out uh, pretty soon. And it was surprising, actually. It's actually kind of cozy uh, inside some of these trucks. Take a look at how it went. Let's go. Papa's got to go to work. This is the hardest part of truck driver Chris Emy's day. All right, have fun at school. <laughs> I love you. Saying goodbye to his wife and four year old in Raleigh, North Carolina. And after a quick send off, I jump in and we're off.
5: They tell you when you sign up that you're going to be away from home, it's different when you live that. It's much different to be out on the road without your family, without talking to
3: anyone face to face for a couple days. First stop is getting the trailer and doing a safety check. Then we head to a distribution center to pick up our load for the trip. First we weigh in and then we wait and wait and wait. It really is a lot of waiting. We're here at this distribution center, supposed to pick up sweet potatoes. It was supposed to happen very fast. We've already been waiting a couple of hours. All of that time, Chris does not get paid. With all the waiting, it's a good time to have lunch. Chris's norm is PB&J. You, you don't get paid
5: uh, while you wait. A lot of the, the industry is paid by the mile for the most part.
3: So if the truck's not rolling, you you aren't getting paid for it for the time that you sit sit at these at these receivers. We waited another two hours, and not only is Chris not getting paid, there's nowhere to use the restroom. The bathroom problem is a big is has
5: become worse with COVID. You'll get to a receiver, and then they'll make you sit there six hours, but they don't let you go inside to use the restroom. And a lot of them have put porta potties in the parking lot and. There's trucks all around. You're in the middle of a hot parking lot in a porta potty that is one porta potty for could be a hundred trucks at that
3: facility that night. Finally, the loading begins, and an hour later, the truck is full of sweet potatoes, and we're off. It seems there's a lot of unpredictable variables with trucking. Every day there's, there's a possibility for unpredictability. We're driving from Raleigh, North Carolina to Mountainville, Pennsylvania. It's 400 miles and about six and a half hours. Diesel is one of the biggest expenses for truckers, but Chris knows a secret gas station off the highway with cheaper prices.
5: This is a little gem here on, on, on I-95 and uh, fuel prices can be anywhere from 20 to 40 cents cheaper than a mile down the road. At my max, I'll take 200 gallons of fuel. You know, you do that twice a week, three times a week. Adds up to a lot of money at the end of the year.
3: After we fill up, get a little coffee. Thank you so much. And we're back on the highway. How much night driving do you do? Do you do a lot of overnights? Um, uh, yeah, I, I'd say the majority of
5: my driving is mainly between the hours of three and three.
3: Most truckers prefer driving at night because the roads are less crowded after a very long day, we finally make it to the drop-off warehouse. But there's bad news. So we just made it um, to our destination where uh, we're going to deliver the, the goods, but the lot is totally full, so there's nowhere uh, to park and actually sleep for the night. This is a very common problem for truckers. Finding a place to sleep is not easy. Chris asks around, but there are no spots available, and the warehouse will not unload his sweet potatoes until morning. I'm going to pull up and turn around. Finally, Chris finds a spot to park. And that, boys, is it for the night. And with that, Chris has a chance to rest. Kick my shoes off. The back of his truck is also his home away from home. He'll sleep a couple of hours before waking up right and early to unload and start it all over again. Okay, so out here at the truck stop, it'll probably start getting pretty busy soon as the truckers head out for the night. And I wanna show you this, Ashley, cause I know you're curious. Um, this is actually where the truckers shower. You see this big building here, it says shower here. Um, and there's seven different showers. And I wanna show you what it looks like, cause this is actually a really nice truck stop here off 95 in, in Miami. Um, they've got a little shower there in the back. They've got, you know, a toilet and a sink um, and it's $13 per shower. So if you want to take a shower here, you go to the front desk and you pay $13 um, and, and you shower and you head out for the night and, and then you drive all night long.
0: That's a lot of money, Brian, 13 I would have thought it'd be like, you know, five bucks for the water, but my times have changed. Those are nice. I have to say, it's not like the truck stop that I was used to seeing when I was a, a kid. Okay, I have another question for you. Do they hang out anywhere else other than the truck stops and then sleeping in? Like, you can't just drive those, those rigs into the city to, you know, pick up something at, at McDonald's. You, you can't really get off the, the, the beaten track, right?
3: No, you can't. A few people uh, have had like scooters and things like that. So if they park out at the uh, at the truck stop along the highway, then they can use their scooters to get into town. But they're really on the move. I mean, look, they're, they're not making money if they're not driving. So, you know, some of them have joked with me. Yeah, we get to see the country. It's so beautiful, but it's mostly from the truck. They really don't have a lot of time to go sightsee uh, or anything like that.
0: And I, I didn't know that they weren't getting paid when they sat there and waited for these unexpected pauses you know in their production line that's very frustrating to see that so um the guy that you were with was his name chris the driver that you spent the day with
3: yeah yep chris yep
0: okay so uh, did chris's dad i heard is also a, a truck driver do they ever see each other on the road and if they do do they stop and like have lunch or like how do they uh, how do they connect <laughs>
3: Yeah, this is so cool. He comes from a family of truckers, so his dad and his grandpa was also a trucker. His dad still drives, and they actually see each other on the road. He was telling me this story. Uh, he was headed up from New Jersey all the way down to Florida, and they literally passed on the highway uh, and were able to wave and honk the horn at each other, which was so cool. They don't really stop to have um, lunch, again, because they're on the move. Like, they want to be moving to make money. Although he did mention once that he had a maintenance problem, and he's pretty new at it, Chris. And his dad was able to come and help him change a tire and figure out what was wrong with his truck.
0: I love it. What a great story, Brian. Thank you. And again, I'm super jealous because I was also that kid that used to do that out yeah. the window, asking the trucker to pull the horn. And they would always do it because they're great guys.
1: Oh, and thank
3: I want to say
0: that. this, Appreciate by the way, it. actually, yeah.
3: they, mm-hmm. let me tell you real quick. They love that. They love it. Like if you're ever on the road oh. and you have a kid and you do that thing so that they actually all love that. That was something that every trucker I talked to said, it really puts a smile on their face. So don't feel bad doing that.
0: That's and I also used to love singing the song, We Got a Great Big Convoy across the USA <laughs> Convoy, and I'm sure they've heard that a million times. But thank you, Brian. Great work.
3: <laughs> Thanks, Ashley.
0: Awesome assignment. Okay. Um, I think it might be finally working. Putting the squeeze on all those rich Russians. Wait until you hear what an oligarch is asking Putin to do. And then wait until you hear what he's asking us. To do for Putin and warning, clear your kids out of the room because the language is about to get pretty salty. When it comes to regulating human behavior, few things work better than taking stuff away from an offender. Think about it. When you were acting out at age two, your mom might have taken your favorite toy. At 12, you might have lost a trip to the movies or, heaven forbid, your iPhone. Uh, at 16, you might lose the keys to the car. And after that, it gets real. Depending on what you've done and who's calling you out, you could lose everything, up to and including your freedom, maybe even your life. It is a tried and true system, folks, found anywhere humans have authority over other humans. It is not perfect, but it works. Just ask Oleg Tinkov. He is a Russian banking tycoon worth an estimated three and a half billion dollars. And while he's not especially close to Vladimir Putin, he's close enough to wind up on Britain's economic sanctions list. And he is not the least bit happy about it. And we know that because the pinch that he's feeling is making him wail. The billionaire took to Instagram and he let loose on Vladimir Putin using some very salty language while he was at it. And I want to read to you what he posted, presumably from outside Russia, you know, to be safe. And by the way, he hardly even looks like the same guy uh, from those other pictures in Better Days. This is what he writes. I don't see any beneficiary of this crazy war. Innocent people and soldiers are dying. The generals, waking up with a hangover, realize that they had a shitty army. Those are his words, not mine. And how will the army be good if everything else in the country is shit, his word, not mine, and mired in nepotism and servility. Kremlin officials are shocked that not only they, but also their children will not go to the Mediterranean in the summer. Businessmen are trying to save the rest of their property. Of course, there are morons who draw Z, the Russian symbol of the Ukraine invasion. But morons in any country are about 10 percent. 90 percent of Russians are against this war and he closes his post in english saying dear collective west please give mr putin a clear exit to save his face and stop this massacre please be more rational and humanitarian sadly for mr Tinkov and the world no clear exit is actually in sight but I do want you to meet another very rich businessman, a Ukrainian who was all too happy to destroy what so many of his Russian counterparts are grieving the loss of, his recently built mega mansion. Andrei Stavnitser spent a lot of time and money building a dream home for himself. It's on the outskirts of Kiev, but when the war came, Stavnitser fled to Poland. But he decided to leave a couple of webcams behind, you know, to keep an eye on this big mansion that he'd spent so much money building. And a couple of weeks later, he discovered that Russian soldiers had turned his beautiful home into a combination barracks and launching pad for attacks on his capital city. He told his story to ITV's Good Morning Britain.
2: There were 12 military vehicles on my territory, including rocket launchers, Grad and Tornado. Uh, which they used to to shot uh, to shoot at Kiev because they had uh, this this equipment has a range of forty kilometers. So they were basically starting to shoot Kiev from my house.
0: So the Russians weren't complete idiots. They destroyed all of the webcams, uh, except for one. All of the webcams, except for one.
2: I felt disgusted. I felt dirty. You know, looking yeah. at some some guys walking inside my house. So it was like an obvious decision. It's not about money.
0: So the fact that he could see that webcam, uh, he made a decision. Andrei Stavnitser contacted the Ukrainian military, his military, and he gave them the precise coordinates of his brand new dream home. And he asked them to bomb it into the Stone Age, which you can see from these pictures they did. On Facebook, Stavnitser posted these, saying, it's easy to restore the walls. It is harder to restore justice. And he also writes, P.S. Friends, stop praising me, please. I didn't hit them with my bare hands. The real heroes are only Ukrainian soldiers. Coming up, will the real Johnny Depp please stand up? The movie star spinning yarns on the stand is portraying himself as an innocent victim of his ex-wife, Amber Heard. But, but, the secret videos and photos from that marriage tell a very different tale. And we're about to show you those videos and photos and let you decide which Johnny Depp is the real Johnny Depp.
4: It's Truck Week, all this week on News Nation, news for all America.
0: Uh, okay, little known fact, um, I can count in German. I, I don't know why I can. I can't speak the language, but I can count. Eins, zwei, drei, vier, fünf, sechs, sieben, acht, I've always been able to do this since a kid. Um, it's probably the reason that I found it really fascinating today when I learned what the German translation for the word dep is. It means twit or nitwit, sometimes even the village idiot. A harmless fool that is too nice for his own good easily taken in by the dangerous grifters lurking around him and wouldn't you know it that is the Depp, the johnny Depp, that he himself has been describing in a virginia courtroom this week he is suing his ex-wife amber heard for an op-ed that she wrote back in 2018 in the washington post he says she ruined his career by describing her history of abuse and in the process maybe kind of sort of revealing that he was the actual abuser even though she didn't name him for two days now, that guy has been on the stand, mostly telling the jury that Amber was the abuser and not him. And it's weird to watch him on the stand, too, because he is not the swashbuckling pirate that you see in all his movies. He is quite the opposite. He is slow. He is methodical. But pop the popcorn, folks, because his ex-wife's lawyer gets a crack at him tomorrow, and you can expect some fireworks. Johnny is no angel. And so far, he has conveniently left that part out, like the time that Amber secretly taped him in the kitchen when he was in a drunken rage. Take a look.
3: Nothing
2: happened this morning, you know that?
5: Were you in here... No. So then nothing happened
2: to you this morning? Yeah, you're right. I just woke up and you were so sweet and nice. We we're not even fighting this morning. All I did was say sorry.
5: Did something happen to you
2: this morning?
5: I don't think so.
0: That continues on. And as soon as he sees that she's um, filming him, he freaks out and it gets uh, pretty ugly. Uh, it turns out that there's another definition for Depp in the dictionary. It's a harsher slang version of the word that translates to jerk and creep and even disgusting person. And if you followed Depp's case in the UK, that was the person we heard a lot about. And it is likely the person that Amber's lawyer is going to reveal under cross, but which Depp will the jury ultimately see or believe joined by an excellent legal mind a guy who has followed both trials jim Murray is an attorney and chief correspondent for inside edition uh amber's got seven lawyers is johnny about to be destroyed
4: well, this is what i was we were talking about this last night this is the risk of bringing this case you're not going to just hear one side of this case but johnny depp said something to me not to me but to the court today that made it very clear he said no matter what happens in this case i'm done he wants his opportunity to set the record straight and speak his truth. Whether he's going to win or not is anybody's guess. He, as you said, he's going to come under cross-examination. And let's face it, we're going to hear Amber's side of the story, not Johnny's.
0: Yeah, just a quick quick 20-second answer here. But isn't Amber going to come out of this looking disgusting as well? Because she did a lot of gross stuff.
4: She did, I believe, based upon what we're hearing so far in court. But I think they're both going to come out of this worse for the wear.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't doubt it. Okay, well, Jim, you got to come back. Uh, we're going to get that explosive testimony tomorrow. I can't wait. Thanks for doing this. Sure thing. Jim Murray, live for us tonight on The Case. Still ahead tonight. Why the alligator crossed the road? This is not a hypothetical question for a neighborhood in South Florida this week, as is evidenced by this extraordinarily cool video. Imagine if you were in that car. Uh, by the way, there is a real answer to this riddle, and I'm going to give it to you when we come back. Okay, I have great video for you of a massive alligator lumbering across a residential street in Venice, Florida yesterday. Uh, so before the break, I asked you the question, why'd the alligator cross the road? Let's just see the video, because <laughs> this segment's not fun at all. If there's no video. There he is. Okay, why'd the alligator cross the road? Here are the short answers. Uh, why not? That's one. How about this one? Are you going to tell him he can't? And then my very favorite answer is, uh, of, of course, to get to the chicken. Yeah, but the real answer, the longer answer, is that he wanted to cool off his tummy in a grassy drainage ditch, and that was over on the other side of the road. Um, also, it is alligator mating season, so I think you could probably draw your own conclusions from that. But that made for a fabulous road trip for the person who took that video, and it made for a great segment for us. And you are alligator green, Marty.
1: I once <laughs> saw you. an like alligator this big. <laughs> Sounds like
2: a story. But he That's wasn't a in a hurry. He wasn't in a hurry, Ashley. If you were was an alligator, moseying. would you be in a hurry? I, well, if he's, it's mating season. I would think he'd he's be in more a, a hurry. He's got a police escort. He's just chilling out. <laughs>
0: I just love mm. that. For some reason, it was my favorite thing today, just watching that guy enjoy his life and everybody else mm-hmm. enjoying watching him enjoy his life. Uh, my favorite <laughs> thing was your hot take
1: on trucks and the singing had me laughing in my office tonight, Ashley. <laughs>
0: the Convoy. Did you yep. love that song, too? I did. I did. I you hear a few notes?
1: Uh, well, no, Ashley's the one who was singing.
0: I can't sing. Don't, I did do the, I, Leland, you know the song Convoy, uh-huh. right? Please, please, please oh, remind yeah, give me. Give us a second. You're doing this, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> okay, ready? We got okay. a great big convoy across the USA. Convoy. Not, not <laughs> bad I for nine. a Canadian.
1: Nice. I, I like
0: right?
1: That. Yeah, I'm laughing again. I love that song. All right, Ashley. I love that song. Thank, Thank you. Have a great show, guys.